Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fox News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to leave. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. Last night, protesters came from across the country and staged in front of the White House to urge the Biden administration to take a firmer stance on its effort to support anti-government demonstrators in Cuba. Within the walls of the Capitol, meantime, the infrastructure debate continues, and this week the U.S. Senate could make some progress on the first bill. While these debates are underway, America also continues to consider which precautions to take as we see a spike in COVID Delta variant cases. For this and more, we'll bring in our panel, National Editor of Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, USA Today, Washington Bureau Chief, Susan Page, and Chief Political Correspondent of the Washington Examiner, Byron York. Susan, let me start with you. These protests are growing outside the White House, and we've seen them before on various issues um, in many administrations. This one deals with Cuba. Uh, is there a sense that the administration is changing anything when it comes to Cuba and its policy uh, to support the protesters in Havana and elsewhere? Well, the other day, the White House did announce some additional sanctions on individuals in, in Cuba, um, a small a small step, but doing something in response to those really remarkable pro-democracy protesters. We don't see that very often in Cuba. That was a significant group of people taking some risks to demonstrate. One thing the White House, the Biden White House has not done is undo the sanctions that were in place. And there had been some speculation when Biden took office that he might take a, a softer line toward Cuba than President Trump had taken. That, is, that has not happened yet. The White House has not been really full-throated in denouncing the Cuban government for cracking down on the demonstrators, but they haven't made it easy on them either. And so my sense is that they are moving with some cautious caution as they try to figure out what to do. Yeah. Byron, the only issue is critics would say that the Obama White House uh, didn't react forcefully in what they said about the protesters in Iran uh, back in the Obama administration times. And they wonder whether this is going to be similar M.O., in other words, kind of a tepid response vocally, there, thereby it goes away. Well, you don't have to just look at the Obama administration's inaction uh, as far as the Iranian protest, protests were concerned. Look what he did with Cuba. I mean, you have these pictures of 
Barack Obama just kind of palling around uh, with the Cuban dictators. So, I, you know, I think that, that the Biden administration, ha- having been, of course, Barack Obama's vice president, uh, is uh, people are looking at him to do something, to be firmer, to, to, be, to show some difference in the way he approaches Cuba. And what, what Susan just described is really weak stuff. And uh, so far, you know, certainly uh, a lot of uh, Cuban Americans in the United States are very disappointed. And Amy, as with everything policy-wise, uh, it comes with a political uh, fallout, potentially, uh, especially in South Florida. Well, I think that's really the, an important question, um, Brett, as we go forward and start thinking about the 2022 midterms and even in 2024, we know that at the, not only the Biden campaign, but also Democratic incumbents in South Florida really underperformed with um, Latino voters. And that was more than just Cubans, but certainly did much worse with the Cuban community in the 2020 election. And a lot of folks uh, at post-election said, well, it was because uh, Democrats didn't push back hard enough on the attacks made by Trump and Republicans on issues like socialism, on issues like defunding the police. And uh, we will do better, say Democrats, on those issues this time around. But obviously, when it gets to the politics of Cuba, that brings us into a very different <laughs> dynamic in in uh, in South Florida, and one in which look we can go all the way back to the 1990s and Elian Gonzalez, where uh, Democrats um, felt frustrated that their party was on the wrong side of that, and the Clinton administration suffered, and Democrats suffered in the immediate wake of that era. And um, it's unclear where we'll be at this point in 2022, but it is clear that for Democrats who I think had sort of taken the uh, shift among Latino voters over these last few years as being a given and that it was only going to continue, that this demographic was only going to continue to line up in their column, uh, they found out that, well, that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Susan, uh, the infrastructure bill, there's the bipartisan negotiated bill that uh, has been worked on for a while. Then there's this other bill that is the human infrastructure, they call it, on Capitol Hill, which is roughly $3.5 trillion and likely would have to be passed with reconciliation. In other words, no Republican votes. On the first part, uh, do you think they have their ducks in a row? Well, they definitely don't have their ducks in a row yet. And uh, I saw a headline uh, on a story online uh, about an hour ago that described the situation as dire. And I think the situation on these kind of negotiations, they're dire until they're done. (laughs) And I'm not quite ready to say that they're not going to get done. Uh, Yesterday, Pelosi's uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, Rob Portman, the senator from Ohio and others, sounded pretty optimistic that they were going to be able to reach a bipartisan deal sometime in the next few days, but they haven't done it yet. And one reason we so rarely see these big bipartisan deals is because they are really hard to do. We are watching sausage being made uh, at the moment, uh, and we don't know if it's going to be the task, that task is going to get to fruition or not. I think it's still possible. And, you know, in this day and age, that would be a pretty big achievement. How long have U.S. presidents been talking about having a big infrastructure bill passed. It's been at least a couple of presidents. 
Yeah. Infrastructure week was many weeks uh, in the Trump administration. <laughs> um, Byron, that said, you had Speaker Pelosi on the air over the weekend saying that she was not going to put the bipartisan bill on the floor until the bigger bill, reconciliation bill, was drafted and ready to go. And she's tying the two, uh, saying that she's not doing one without the other. That may not sit with all the moderate Democrats. Well, that's where she has always been. That's where uh, Chuck Schumer has been. And that's where President Biden was in his news conference when he kind of surprised people by uh, saying that. Uh, I, I think we're in the finger pointing, uh, maybe pre-recrimination stage right now. Uh, like Susan, I uh, heard Rob Portman and thought things were you know, very close. I mean, we're just right there. Uh, but then you find out, well, no, they, they don't fully agree on, uh, on water systems. They don't agree on Davis-Bacon. Uh, they're not sure about how much of that uh, unspent COVID money to spend. And there's transit issues. I mean, there's a bunch of things that they have not nailed down. So uh, I'm not saying it's not going to happen. Uh, but this is something where clearly there was way too much, in retrospect, there was too much optimistic talk for a while in this belief that this bill could get done. Uh, and hanging over it all is, is the question that you asked, the fact that even if they pass this, um, you know, the speaker is going to have to have the big Democratic, all Democratic human infrastructure bill uh, in her pocket before she'll move ahead with it. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. So, Amy, Republican critics say don't do this. Don't tie on to this. Don't provide Democrats a win. Don't provide uh, any link to that second bill especially. Uh, But... For elections, uh, especially ones up for re-election, bringing home the bridge, the airport, the road is important. Yeah, there's a reason that these negotiations have continued and why you have multiple Republicans signed on, at least signed on, signing on to the original sort of framework, and many of them aren't up in 2022. Some of them are even retiring, like Rob Portman, the lead Republican negotiator. He's not going to be around in 2022, or he will be around, but he won't be running for re-election to try to take credit for it. A lot of this is, some of it is legacy building. Some of it is, as I think you said at the very beginning, Brett, like that everybody loves infrastructure. Everybody wants to bring stuff home. And we're also talking about things like broadband and water pipes, um, issues that um, really do, they've always transcended partisanship. The transportation bill was always one of those, again, in the olden days where you could get both sides, not only to to agree to a a bill, to legislation, um, but, you know, each of them would sort of wink and nod as the they allowed certain individual members to get their own pet projects in there. And, um, And so I think, you know, at the end of the day, you still have a number of members of Congress who say, I don't want to leave at the end of the year without getting anything done, whether I'm running for reelection or not. We need to show that this place is actually functional and we need to have 
uh, an American, if we're going to have an American recovery, as everybody is talking about, it can't happen if we don't have broadband everywhere or if pipes are still contaminated in parts of the country or if people can't get to where they need to go. Um, You know, that I think is still a pretty powerful argument. The other reality, if you're a Republican, is that, all right, well, this then just gets folded in anyway into a big, as we discussed, the the human infrastructure piece, this will get folded into the human infrastructure piece that Democrats would pass on their own and say, well, you know, Republicans didn't want to play. They didn't want to give more money for COVID relief. We had to pass that on our own, they'll say in campaign ads. They'll also say, you know, Republicans didn't want to help fix all of the problems in this country, uh, vote for Democrats because at least we delivered would be the message. Right. That's a powerful one. Um, obviously, nobody's talking about deficit and debt in this environment and hasn't really for a, a long time. Uh, there are some talking about it now uh, who really didn't focus on it in the Trump administration. Last thing, uh, as we're dealing with all of this, uh, there is this resurgence of COVID and the Delta variant, it is taking off and some states and localities are deciding whether to reimpose a mask mandate or other rules. Um, It does, Susan, feel like we're heading in the wrong direction. There is a bright light over in Britain in that they apparently hit their peak and now are going down. Uh, They're usually a little bit ahead of us, but thoughts on the resurgence? Yeah, it's uh, it's discouraging, isn't it? Because we had that sense for a while that we'd gotten the pandemic under control, uh, that things were heading in the right direction. We could take off our masks, we could hug our children, uh, it, and now that seems in in some in some peril. It's true that vaccines continue to provide a lot of protection. They protect you from getting into the hospital, from dying of the disease in almost all cases, uh, but they don't prevent you from possibly getting it, uh, and. So, yeah, we've seen, uh, you know, big decisions being made now by the state of California requiring its employees to either get vaccinated or be regularly tested. And by the VA, the first big federal agency to require its healthcare workers to be vaccinated. We're going to I think this is going to ignite a battle uh, over uh, with the, those who are reluctant to be vaccinated over whether they can insist on not being vaccinated when we know how important that can be for the protection of all of us. Right. Yeah, I I do foresee, I agree with you, legal battles to come. Um, Obviously, we've dealt with vaccines for years, for polio and for other things uh, that are required for for school children uh, to get before they start in school. But um, this is a different deal, an emergency use. The FDA, Byron, still has not uh, done the full approval that seems like a big factor that uh, could make things a little bit easier. But there's also this thought, uh, are we going back to day one if the numbers continue to rise or do we somehow adjust the way we think about masks and vaccines and other things? Well, I mean, we have uh, mass quantities of vaccines, so I certainly hope we're not going back to day one. But I think that the, the problem here, especially before any government measures are taken, any lockdowns or restrictions are taken, the, the administration has not been really clear about what's going on here. If people had an exaggerated sense of the efficacy 
of vaccines, then they need to talk about that. If people didn't understand the issue of breakthrough infections, then they need to be clear about that. And then they need to be clear about the severity of cases uh, with uh, the, the Delta variant, whether it's less severe than, than what we understood uh, most COVID cases to be last year. Uh, all of this stuff, any talk about any economic or political measures to be taken has to depend on a common understanding of some of the facts of this. And, and a lot of people are like me, are very confused about some of this, not entirely sure we know, and the, and the government has not, has not illuminated the situation. And Amy, you have, you know, along party lines, um, handle things differently uh, in different states. You've got Florida Governor DeSantis speaking very boldly about what's not going to happen in his state, uh, but other states choosing a much more cautious approach and, and how that plays out politically is going to be interesting to see. It is fascinating. And as we know, so much of this is psychological as well. I mean, Byron makes a good point about what we know and what we don't know and how people respond to that, right? Some people respond to uncertainty by taking the most precautions possible. And so is that going to mean we're going to see some of these sort of green shoots that have come up this year with the economy recovering, people feeling more comfortable traveling, eating inside restaurants, going on airplanes? Is that going to be... um, you know, uh, impacted, not necessarily because of the the data, but because of the just sort of the sort of psychological piece of this. And, and we know too, hearing from people on Facebook, whether it's that their friends who are spreading um, just their own theories, or whether they're actively spreading misinformation, even though they may not know it, that plays a really big part of this. The other thing that's going to be interesting is, um, you know, the Kaiser Foundation has been doing great polling on, on vaccine and vaccine hesitancy since the very beginning here. And when they looked in June at the two groups of people who were unvaccinated, they were pretty evenly divided between people who said, I want to wait and see. So I'm not comfortable right now. I want to wait and see. And we hear a lot about that. That's it. the FDA, Brett, as you raised, you know, that may be one reason why it hasn't been approved yet. Do you know what I'm going to interrupt? Oh, go ahead. I was told that the FDA, that the thing holding up the approval is not determining the shelf life of the vaccine, like how long it can sit on the shelf. Oh, really? And of factors that we want to deal with as far as vaccine hesitancy, if you had that FDA stamp of approval, I do think it would move some numbers of people. It, I don't know what would. the number is. Well, the number right now, like let's say in this, in this poll, all right, so 12% of all adults said they we're taking a wait and see approach because that's why they were unvaccinated. Now, I don't know that all of those folks, you're right, would say, well, the FDA has approved it. Good. That's the wait and see I needed. But it certainly would seem to be very important. The bit, the, the other group, though, that's that's the more problematic is an equal percent. So 13 percent of all Americans said, I'm definitely not going to take it. And I don't think that there's much that either, either the government uh, that a uh, that the FDA, that an official um, with the you know, mayor's office or the president could say to change their mind, the only thing that may make them, quote unquote, make them change is that they were actually mandated. So if you're a healthcare worker at the VA or if you're in the state of California or a state of New York, you might not have a choice. But other than that, um, 
It is, uh, you know, it, it, while it, it is important, I think, for a certain segment of the population, there's another segment of the population that n- no amount of cajoling or reassuring or science is going to make uh, much of a difference. Well, we'll follow it all. A lot going on at the same time. Thank you all. Here's a bit of presidential trivia. On July 26th, 1947, President Harry S. Truman signed the National Security Act into law, becoming one of the most important pieces of Cold War legislation. The three key parts of this act, first, it unified the nation's military by bringing together the Navy Department and the War Department and establishing the Department of the Air Force, all under a new Department of Defense. Second, the act created the National Security Council. And finally, it set up the Central Intelligence Agency, which replaced the Central Intelligence Group. National Security Act took effect in September of 1947, although it had both successes and failures. The National Security Act indicated just how seriously the U.S. government took the Cold War threat. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Please make sure to leave a rating, a review. We want to hear from you. For Amy and Susan and Byron, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. guy benson join me weekdays at 3 p.m eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests listen live on the fox news app or get the free podcast at guybensonshow.com